If you would, please turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be reading verse 18 down to verse 26. Philippians 1, 18, and if your Bible has uh, those subject headings, you'll notice that 18 concludes one section and also begins another section, but we're actually going to read the entire verse in verse 18. Philippians 1, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we come before you this morning and... Lord, what a great delight, what a great privilege it is to sing your praises, to be able to sing that all we have is Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would show us this in this text this morning, that as we sit under your word, that we would continue to exclaim long after this service, that all we have is Christ and that we would have the joy that comes from knowing Christ and having Christ as our greatest treasure. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we talked about the preaching of the gospel and even though Paul was in prison and even though there were others who were considered rivals to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and yet he continued to rejoice because even though they are these others who are rivals preaching the gospel, even though they are, uh, he's in prison and might consider this as the church taking a hit, others are more emboldened to speak the gospel without fear. The gospel continues to move forward, and even through the Apostle Paul, while he is in prison, the gospel continues to be proclaimed. And in that, he rejoices, and his rejoicing continues here in this next, next part of the passage, or, the next chapter, or this next part of the chapter, rather. So Paul has this great joy in the preaching of the gospel, but more than just the preaching of the gospel, 
Paul is the apostle of joy. You can see this in, in his letters, and you can see this so clearly here in Philippians. Not only that, but the apostle Paul is, I would consider him the apostle of death as well. Not only because he came close to dying so many times, but if you read through his letters, he seems so preoccupied with death itself. I mean, if you just did a word study on the word die or dying or death, you would see that just in the book of Romans alone, the word is mentioned over 20 times. He seems just so concerned with death. Even in this passage, he says that to depart and be with Christ, and by depart, he means by dying. So dying to be with Christ is far better. And he can talk a lot about death for at least a few reasons. One is that he's, he's a man who's unafraid of death. Not that, that, not that death isn't scary, but he's not afraid of dying. But Paul also saw death as a good thing, and he helps the church to understand death in a different light, right? helping us to understand what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. To believe in Christ means that you are dead to your old self and have been born again. You've been given a new life in Christ. And he considered death to be a good thing because death means also being with Christ. But he can talk a lot about death because he had about him this enduring joy in Jesus Christ. And it is that joy that we see in this text. So we see his rejoicing in the advancement of the gospel continues here in this passage. So Paul is in prison, and at this point, I think he's still waiting for a hearing before Caesar himself. And he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I don't think he means his immediate deliverance, that is, his deliverance from imprisonment, for at least a couple of reasons. Namely, because of Job 13, 16. I think Paul is talking about an eschatological salvation. I think he's talking about, in other words, his future vindication, his future justification in Jesus Christ. I think it's what he's referring to. And the words here... And the Philippians are actually verbatim to the words in Job 13, 16, at least in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. In Job 13, 16, Job says, This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. So Job, after suffering a lot and his friends coming before him saying, You have done some sin in your life that you need to repent of, and Right, Job says, no, there isn't, but he looked forward to a future vindication that ultimately God will set things right. And I think it's the same idea that Paul is talking about here in this passage. He's looking for a future vindication. Not only that, but in the passage, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Hope and ashamed, two words that are often used in connection to the salvation that is the consummation of the salvation of Jesus Christ. When all things will be made right and that those who believe in Christ at the end will not be put to shame. It will be shown that they have been absolutely vindicated in their believing and following Jesus Christ. This is similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 26, verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord. 
For I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The psalmist is also looking for a future vindication. Will he will be shown that he was absolutely right in following the Lord. So Paul seems to have this confidence in the prayers of the saints, and I don't think they're necessarily praying for Paul's future vindication, but I think it's that their prayers for him in, their, in his present predicament, in his being in prison, he's confident that, his, that their prayers God will use to, 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 to help him to endure, to continue to run the race without wavering, without falling away in the end. And speaking of the prayers of the saints, this is one of the places where we see one of the themes in the letter of Paul to the Philippians, this theme of God and man's efforts. It says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So it is the prayers of the saints and the Spirit of Jesus Christ that is helping push the Apostle Paul further and further to continue to endure until the very end. Those two things are working together. We see this over and over again in the Bible, that God always uses means to accomplish his own purposes and ends, and he uses means to help his people. And what do we learn in the New Testament about prayer, about asking? You receive not because you ask not. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and it will be given to you. Now surely in His grace and kindness, God will come through and provide and give to you what you need most or even what you desire even without you asking. But what we see in the Bible is that that's not God's regular way of operation. He normally uses means to accomplish his own ends, his own purposes, and to help his people. James 5.16 tells us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I don't think James is telling us a full, a, a sure way of making sure that we are always healed when we have illnesses. But I think he's pointing to the effectiveness of prayer. That prayer, that the prayer of a righteous person, that is the prayer of a saint, the prayer of a person who believes and follows Jesus Christ is effective as it is working. So prayer is the vehicle that God uses to help his people. What is the most, what is the, what renders a Christian prayer utterly ineffective? What makes a Christian prayer just absolutely vain, accomplish nothing? It is a prayer that's never prayed. It is the prayer that, never, that is never prayed, that is ineffective, won't accomplish anything. We see here, Paul is absolutely confident that it is the prayer of God's people and 
the Spirit of Christ Jesus, who is going to help him in the end to endure and to run this race without wavering. And it's not the prayer of God's people. It's not my prayer. It's not your prayer itself. It's not the power doesn't come from you. But God uses the prayer as a vehicle to, to, for, for effect. It is, a, is that God uses the prayer of God, of his people. to accomplish his purposes and to provide what the saints need. I like to watch the, the Tour de France or the Tour de France, mainly because I like the, the scenery. I don't know how you have, to have a lot of self-control to be cycling and not get distracted by the wonderful scenes in the, the, the landscape. But anyways, in the, in, the, in the tour, right, in the event, there is, there, there's, there's teams, and in the, each team, there's a team leader, and the team leader is preceded by his teammates. The teammates are the ones who are, who are cycling in front of him. And why is that? Because his teammates are the ones who are, who are taking a lot of the wind resistance on behalf of the team leader. Because in the entire cycling event, with the teammates riding or cycling in front of the team leader, it actually spares the team leader, about 20 to 40% of his energy, allowing him to endure and cycle longer and longer because of the wind resistance that his teammates are taking on his behalf. The prayers of the saints are like, it's like a cycling team where the prayers of the saints are taking the wind resistance of the person that they're praying for it doesn't take away all the resistance, but it takes away some of it so that you can at least endure that much longer. And that is how necessary the prayers of the saints are. That is how much we need to be praying for one another. I wonder if you are struggling with a particular sin, if you are having a, particular difficulty, a particularly difficult season that you're just having a hard time just enduring through, I wonder if it might be a little bit easier to go through. I wonder if you might experience a little bit more victory if you had people praying for you. Are you asking people to pray for you? Are you being that transparent and honest? For some of you, right, who have been or have had in the past or currently are going through a difficult season for whatever it might be, I wonder how much harder it might be for you if you didn't have people praying for you. God uses means to help his people. And God means to use the prayers of his children to help his children. And that's how much we ought to be praying for one another. And Paul places so much confidence in the prayers of the church because he knew, he knew that as long as God's people were praying for him, God was going to use those prayers in an effective way to help him endure to the end. And we can have that same confidence as well when we know and trust that, uh, that God's people, that our brothers and sisters are praying for us, that that is helping us endure the trials and making them just even just a little bit easier to manage. And in that, Paul rejoices. 
He rejoices to know that God's people are praying for him in the same way we should also rejoice in knowing that God's people are praying for us, that we have people here praying for us. So don't be shy about asking people for prayer. As Christians, we're not called to be selfish people, but I think we can be selfish when it comes to asking for prayer. So then that Paul rejoices... And secondly, Paul's rejoicing contemplated. So continuing in the passage, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. Now here we come to one of the most famous statements in the New Testament. The one statement that I think many, if not all, Christians are familiar with. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But I wonder how many of us have actually given good thought to that passage. So let's break that down in half. So first, to live is Christ. And sometimes, some people can say things better than we can. And I find that to be the case here. One person, one commentator says, as he's talking about this particular passage, to live is Christ, he says, life, both physical and spiritual, is summed up in Christ. Life is filled up with, occupied with Christ, in the sense that everything that Paul does, trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on, is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. Christ and Christ alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to existence. Paul views his life in time as totally determined and controlled by his own love for and commitment to Christ. In other words, if I were to sum that up, I would say that Paul is a man who is absolutely possessed. The man is possessed. There's one quote from a movie. It's Inception, in case you're curious. In the movie, is a quote that says, An idea that is fully formed takes hold of the brain and it becomes almost impossible to eradicate. Maybe you've experienced that, maybe not, but when you have an idea, when you have a good idea, when you come up with something, whether it's something that maybe generates more of an income, something that's going to help your livelihood, something that's going to help or benefit another person, when you have this really, really good idea, when it's fully formed, it has a tendency to take possession of your mind. It's almost like a parasite that just takes over. Paul is a man who is possessed by an idea, more than an idea, but the man is possessed by irreality, and that is the reality of God and the reality of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. That Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth to die on behalf of sinners. That, if, that Jesus came to die for all those who would place their faith upon Jesus and they would receive forgiveness of sins, they would receive eternal life, they would be spared from the judgment of God. 
Paul is gripped, he is possessed by the reality of Jesus Christ. That is why he would then say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Possessed. He's possessed by Christ so that it is no longer he who's living, but it is Christ living in and through him. And when one is possessed by Christ, you would say the same thing that Paul would say, that to die is gain. Because when you are possessed by Christ, when Christ is your greatest treasure, you don't see death as an escape, but you see death as gain because you gained the one who has taken possession of your very soul, and that is Christ. And this, by the way, is a man coming from a man who suffered a lot. For him, living for Christ meant enduring suffering over and over and over again. And yet, because he's so possessed by Christ, because he, was, he treasured Christ so much, he saw it as only gain to continue to live for Christ. And when one is possessed by Christ, it leads to something else. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. When somebody is possessed by Christ, when Christ is their greatest treasure, they cannot help but also live for others and look out to the interests of others, namely his brothers and sisters in Christ. More on that a little bit later towards the end of the passage. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, this is coming from a man who suffered a lot on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from being mocked, from being beaten, from being imprisoned. This man suffered a lot. And suffering as much as he did, it might lead somebody to conclude, maybe even we might conclude, as Antigone said in an ancient Greek play, Whoever lives in as many ills as I, how does this one not get gained by dying? And when somebody has suffered agonizingly, when somebody suffers imaginably, sometimes they're brought to the point where they are thinking, well, death is better than this. Right? And that's a tragedy. We pray and hope those who suffer such agonizingly would come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for the Apostle Paul, that's not how he saw death. He did not see death as an escape from suffering. He saw death as a moment of gain because he would gain Jesus Christ, who's taken possession of his soul. He would be able to see Christ fully. 
he would be able to behold Jesus. He would be able even to embrace Jesus. And so Paul is, is facing this tension that to some degree we cannot fully comprehend. He's faced with this impossible decision. Shall I depart? I my desire to depart and be with Christ, but I also desire to remain, to continue to live for Christ and also for your sake. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He cannot make a decision. It's an impossible decision. It's like trying to choose which child is your favorite. Which I would not recommend doing. Otherwise, you'll end up with a situation like Jacob and Esau. One who tried to kill the other. It's a difficult decision. To some degree, we cannot fully understand this tension because we haven't endured the kind of suffering that Apostle Paul did. But at the very least, what we can take away from this shocking decision that he's faced with, that he cannot decide on, is that Christ was his greatest treasure. Christ will be his treasure if he continues to live. Christ will be his treasure if he passes on and dies. So the greatest value to the Apostle Paul, even more valuable than his own life, was having Jesus Christ. Do you see Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure? Do you see him as the greatest possession of your life? And why should you? Is it just because the Apostle Paul did? In one sense, yeah. That is one reason. I mean, Paul tells us in the New Testament, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul should be somebody that we seek to imitate, that we look to. We should all be saying, hey, I want to be like Apostle Paul. We should imitate him in his life, his preaching of the gospel, his living a righteous life. But if you really want to imitate the Apostle Paul, you want to, then you should also seek to imitate his heart. And Christ was the greatest treasure of his heart. But not only should we have Christ as our greatest treasure, because the Apostle Paul did, but we should have Christ as our greatest treasure, because Christ is our salvation. Because Jesus is your salvation. Jesus should be your greatest treasure because he is your hope. Jesus should be your greatest treasure because he is your forgiveness. He is your mercy. He is your grace. Jesus Christ should be your greatest treasure because he is your eternal life. Because he is the only way to the Father. Jesus Christ should be your greatest treasure. Because he was your substitute on the cross when it should have been you and it should have been me crucified to that cross. That is why Christ should be your greatest treasure and my greatest treasure. And when you are possessed by Christ and when Christ is your supreme treasure, you cannot help but have joy in Jesus Christ. If you want more joy in your own personal life, then just think and dwell on salvation. Think of what Christ has done for you. So Paul has this incredible joy that comes from being possessed by Christ. Which then also leads him to be concerned with the joy of others. So given the joy that he exudes and the choice, this choice that he cannot make, it seems then that the choice is made for him. 
So lastly, Paul's joy employed. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So then his desire to depart and be with Christ gives way to the necessity of his remaining. So he is then to remain for the sake of the church. Now, we don't know how exactly how he is so confident in that, but he seems very confident that he's going to remain for some time for the progress and joy of God's people. So he's concerned with their quality of life as a, as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned a few weeks ago in a different sermon how Paul wants us to live the superior life. In chapter 1, right, his prayer for the church is that the church may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And I said that this superior life is a life that is growing in holiness. This is a life that seeks to imitate the Apostle Paul. This is the superior life. is the life that is growing the fruit of righteousness that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 4, 11, you kind of see the same idea. 1 Timothy 4, 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when councils of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. The Christian life is a superior life. And that life is a life that is always growing in knowledge, always growing in understanding, always growing in faith, always growing in holiness. The Christian life is a life that is always heading towards a certain direction, and that direction, namely, is heavenward. We should never settle to become stagnant in our faith but we should always be making progress, moving further and further along, growing and growing and growing. And we do a disservice to one another when we don't do something to wake somebody up when they've become stagnant in their faith. We should always be encouraging one another to continue to pursue the Lord in growing in understanding and knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how do you know when you've become stagnant in your faith? Here are some diagnostic questions to ask yourself. Have you learned anything? Have you been learning anything? What's the Lord been teaching you? Perhaps in his word, perhaps through others, maybe something you've been reading lately. What have you been learning? And depending on how you answer that question, I would then also ask you, are you reading God's word? 
How often are you in the Word? What is your habit of reading the Word? Do you normally just pick it up, read it for five minutes, put it down, and go about the rest of your day? Now, certainly there is at least some value to that, for sure. But I would exhort you with the words of Apostle Paul to the young Timothy, when he says to him, think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There's no growing understanding unless you first do some thinking. And God's word demands to be thought about. It demands to be meditated upon. And then again, we, there again we see this, this, this God and man's effort. We think God gives understanding. I would also ask, how's your prayer life? How often are you praying? What are you praying for? One last question is, how is your fellowship? Are you fellowshipping with other believers? Are you meeting with believers on a weekly basis? On a Sunday morning, are you coming together with God's people during the week? What's your fellowship look like? Right, and we have a responsibility to one another to pursue one another, but this is especially important, especially pertinent for those of you who, because of COVID or other reasons, are homebound. There, you is required of you to have to make much more of an effort to fellowship with believers through some way, shape, or form. And it's not that this isn't a surefire way. This isn't going to make things all the more, all the better overnight. Again, God, but God uses means to accomplish His work. And certainly doing these things is better than doing nothing at all. So not only is there a concern for growing in maturity, but it's also a concern for joy. The Christian life is a life that is always increasing in joy. Now in a few weeks I'll kind of doing excursions and devote an entire sermon just to Christian joy. But for now, how would you define joy? At least how would I define joy? I would define joy as being at a, as a state of being, as a state of rest, where you are resting in the promises of God, where you are resting in your continuing and abiding presence of Jesus Christ in your life. Joy is having satisfaction in Jesus Christ, finding your all, finding your contentment in Christ. And it is seen so vividly in times of temptation, it is seen so vividly in times of distress, in times of suffering, of sadness and grief. To be a Christian full of joy in those moments is to suffer is to be saddened, is to be in agony and still say that God is good. That God is my joy. That God is my contentment. That God is my satisfaction. That is the joy of the Christian. So then, there's this concern the progress and joy in the faith. And what's the purpose? He says in verse 25, 
or verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The purpose that the church may glory in Christ in the Apostle Paul because of Paul's returning to them. So because of his return, they will glory in Christ. Now what does Paul mean by glory? What does he mean by the word glory here? I think it means a couple different things. The word glory can mean the word proud. Now, proud isn't always a sinful thing. You can be proud in a healthy and even in a biblical way. The word proud essentially just means the feeling of deep pleasure and satisfaction in achievements, qualities, or possession. Now, sure, you can say that to an extreme, but there's a healthy way of having a deep satisfaction in certain things. And, even then, and you can even direct that towards another person, right? You can be proud of someone's achievements and possessions. So the sense of being proud, but there's another sense as well. Philippians 3.3. 3. Sometimes, by the way, it's helpful when you're looking, we read through the scriptures and you've come to a particular word and you're trying to figure out how, what it means or what the author means. It's helpful to look at that same word, how it's used elsewhere in the same book or in the same letter. Philippians 3.3 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's this contrast between Christ being, being in Christ Jesus or glory in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. So glory, I think, is further clarified or further defined when we come to the end of that sentence, namely putting no confidence in the flesh. So in other words, glory can be defined as confidence. The glory in Christ Jesus is to have a confidence in Christ Jesus because of all that you possess in Christ Jesus, which results in your boasting in Christ Jesus. It's similar to what's written in the book of Jeremiah, where the Lord says, Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Where should your confidence be? What should you be boasting in? What should you be proud of? Being proud of the fact that you understand and know the Lord. That is something to boast about. Oh, you know Bill Gates. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I can do you one better. I know Jesus. I know the Lord. Right? We should never have any shame in knowing Jesus Christ. Because Christ is our Savior. And when you treasure something, when you have something that is so valuable, right, you're not ashamed of it, but you boast in it. Especially when it's something that makes, especially when it's an object or something that is worthy of desiring. This is where our confidence comes from. This is our grounds of our boasting. And this is where our joy comes from as well, knowing Christ Jesus. And Jesus is much more valuable. Jesus is much more exciting than the show you might be watching on Netflix. Jesus is much more exciting than the hobby you enjoy doing. Jesus is much more exciting, brings much more joy than the thing in your life that you might value most. 
for Paul to depart and be with Christ was cause for rejoicing. To remain was also a cause for joy because it meant that he would remain for the sake of the church. Right? He says, for their progress and joy in the faith. Right? As, as elders and pastors, right, that's our concern as well for the church. Your progress and joy in the faith. But that should also be a collective concern as well, that we are concerned for each other's progress and joy in the faith that we pursue those things, that we help one another along those lines. So I pray that each one of us will see the, the, the family of Jesus Christ as a cause for rejoicing and that we would lift each other up before the throne of grace for each other's progress and joy in the faith, that we would each be possessed by Jesus Christ and that we would have the joy of Jesus Christ from knowing Christ and being possessed by Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for all that you are for us, for all that you've done for us, and for all that you continue to do for us. God, we pray that you may continue to give us this joy from knowing you. Help us to meditate deeply on the salvation that we have through the cross. That we would meditate deeply on all the saving benefits that come to us through believing and following Jesus. Help us to exude this joy. And help us, Lord, to encourage this joy in one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.